All right, so tonight we want to talk about the Word of God. And it's interesting, we can think about the question in two ways, right? Who is the Word of God? We can ask the question a different way. What is the Word of God? And based on who you, how you ask the question, you're going to get the Protestant answer based on the what. It's this book minus all those Catholic books that they added, right, allegedly. And the who, that's the Catholic answer, right? For us, the Word of God is initially who? It's the Son of God, right? The person. We do not worship a book. We worship the person of God. And the Word of God is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And you'll recall all the things we talked about him, how he's the perfect image of the Father. He's the perfect reflection of the Father. Whenever the Father does anything, he does it by means of the Word, by means of the Word. So it's by means of the Word of God or the Son, we now know, uh, the worlds were created. Okay? All revelation comes through him, who's the wisdom of God. And so the Word of God that we get as a book is through the revelation that the Son reveals to the world. Some of that revelation is contained in the book. Some of that revelation is not. Now, our Protestant friends, when they think of the Word of God, they think of the book. So tonight, we want to try to talk about both and how they come together. Because as Catholics, we think very highly of the Bible. But we don't worship it. In Protestant churches, you will see the altar up front like we have. But on the altar is not the bread and the wine. What's on there? Jesus. No, we have Jesus on the altar. What do they have on the altar? The yes, the Bible, the open book. If you've ever been to an evangelical church or Protestant church, you might see this kind of symbolism. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. We have the Eucharist, the living Christ. They have a book. That's a big difference. It's a big difference in emphasis. So tonight we want to try to talk about that and understand, well, where does the book fit into what we do how does the book reveal the Son, but not completely capture who he is? Because he's revealed himself before there ever was a book, didn't he? Yeah. Right. So how do we talk about that? And what is the meaning of that? And then, in practical terms, what is the significance of that for us and how we understand our faith? And that's what we want to do tonight. Everyone understand the mission? Okay, so let's talk about this... Um, Deposit of faith. We've been using that term now and then. Jesus came down, as Moses did. Remember, we had two great revelations, the Jewish one in Moses and then the Christian one in Jesus. And we call what Jesus gave us the deposit of faith. And we do think of it as a deposit, something that he invested in us, in the church, and expected to develop and grow, just like any deposit. The amount of interest isn't the point, right? It's that it's expected to grow and develop. Now, the original deposit is still the same thing, but it's supposed to be multiplied as it's chewed on and reflected on. And the deposit includes, yes, what's written down in the apostolic memoirs. We talked about those last week. Those gospels, we call them now. The apostolic letters from St. Peter's and Paul. And these eventually, about 300 and some odd years later, are recognized to be the Bible that we think of now or the New Testament scriptures. Prior to these letters being written, the church was using the old, what we call the Old Testament, which are actually the Hebrew Bible. 
Because remember, we've been saying from the beginning, the church is the fulfillment of Judaism. We don't have anything against Judaism. We love the Jews. Okay? We love the old books, these great traditions and great texts. We just take them in. Our Jewish friends do not think very highly of that. So we try to be sensitive and respectful to them. Nevertheless, we do regard their books as scripture. So, you know, you could have a little awkward moments now and then about that. But really, we're showing them respect. Right? So when the apostles are running around, going all over the world, spreading the gospel, there is no book like this. There's just the scrolls of the, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And as we talked about last week, all these little sayings of Jesus, all the things Jesus said that people remembered, and they are more than what's containable within the Bible. In fact, St. John says at the end of his gospel, he's the last gospel writer, okay? He says, the world could not contain everything Jesus said and did. It's just, it's impossible. So I've given you what's necessary for you to understand how eternal life works. Fair enough. And so we understand that the deposit of faith is not simply what is written because it was given before anything was written and the deposit was still there. So where is it? Right? Well, it's in what Jesus taught. And when he leaves and is ascended into heaven and Pentecost happened, that knowledge is not contained in anything written because it's not written. It's contained in the apostles. And the apostles are the ones authorized to head out into the world. And they have two missions. Jesus gives them two missions. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the primary objective. And then he gives two ways that's to be done. How do you preach the gospel? One, baptizing. That's the first of our sacraments. We'll talk more about the sacraments uh, after our break. Okay. But we've already talked about this is the sacrament of faith, baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them everything that I commanded you. So the twin missions of the apostles are baptism, which are the sacraments, baptism being the first, and teaching everything Jesus gave. And what they knew was three years worth of teaching, and they'd been listening to him for all this time. Now, here's what's significant. The apostles are authorized by Jesus to do this mission. The authority of the church is based on the author of these truths, namely God himself, authorizing these authors to do this. You see how the word authority, authorization, author all comes together here? So the author has the authority to transmit what is being given. And what is being given is being given eventually in what is written. Absolutely. But it's also being given in what is sung. It's also being given in little poetic ditties to help people remember things, some of which are actually in the New Testament. You can see these little lines of poetry. They were early little Christian sayings. Some of it is contained within our early creeds when they try to gather it together and figure it out. Some of it's contained in epitaphs. I read a book that contained all the first century epitaphs gathered from the Christian tombstones. <laughs> Extraordinary what's contained in them. Beautiful, beautiful things. <clears throat> well, that's part of that transmission of information, right? 
Some of it's contained in the practices of the church, the liturgy. How did they do their worship ceremonies? And if you go back to the ancient churches and you pull the debris after you know, Islam came and destroyed it all, they, there's a destruction layer. You go down, you go deeper, and what do you find? You find the same things again and again. Church structure in the shape of a cross. Candlesticks. Big cups for putting in the wine, right? Everything that's the practices of the faith, which then help us understand how they did things. All right? And then, of course, there's the, the oral tradition. What's being said that people don't even think, oh, we, maybe we should write this down. Many things that never occurs to them, anyone's going to challenge. So they don't think they need to write it down. It's, well, it's obvious. Everyone knows that. And you know how it is. 1,500 years later, someone will object, and it's not written down. And someone will say, well, then it's not real. Well, that doesn't follow, right? It's not, it's not, that doesn't follow. Some of the things are entailed. So we have what's written, but we also have what is given through oral tradition. And so we talk about tradition. And tradition refers to all those things that have been talked about, practiced, taught since the beginning. Because remember, what we're trying to get at is what is true. That's what we're trying to get at. And the truths of faith are all the additional information that Jesus gave about the world, the universe, salvation, everything, that's in addition to all the normal things that we know through history, all the arts, the sciences, psychology, you know, what we would, we would divide all these sciences up now. But in the ancients, they just would have talked about their understanding of the world. <coughs> and the truths of the faith ride on top of that. So what the mission of the deposit of the faith is, and then to think about and reflect on it and see what it means, is to take that deposit, the truths of the faith, plus the truths of everything else, synthesize them into a common, greater understanding. And you can see this greater understanding reflected if you compare the artistic achievements of the Hellenic Greeks, which are probably the greatest artistic achievements in the ancient world, and you compare them to the greatest artistic achievements ever and this, of course, is in the Renaissance. And the Renaissance owes a lot to Hellenistic Greece. Let's not try to diminish it. But there are things that are accomplished in the Renaissance that the Greeks simply cannot get to. There could be an artistic perfection in Greek sculpture and an artistic perfection in Renaissance sculpture. And you can compare them. And they're both truly extraordinary. But there are thematic elements because of the mixture of general knowledge together with the truths of the faith, the coming together of both that the ancient Greeks, being pagans, simply did not possess. No ancient Greek sculpture can do a sculpture of Gabriel coming down to Mary and announcing the Incarnation. Every single artist worth his salts in the Renaissance did not just one but multiple enunciations, right? Because the Annunciation was one of the, arguably the greatest moment of human history. God becoming man. And you just don't get that in pagan Greece. If it had happened then, the Greeks would have been all about putting that into sculpture and their poetry and on, you know, those black and red, um, uh, what are those things called? The, I got, starts with a K, Kraton? You know those big drink jars? You know what I'm talking about, right? And you've seen them in the museums? Uh, covered in the black and the orange with all those warriors doing their things in ancient Greece. Can imagine the Annunciation done in that, and that's what you would have seen. 
But it's not just the Annunciation, it's the crucifixion and the resurrection and Jesus healing and Jesus teaching. And all these themes that you see again and again and again in Renaissance um, painting and sculpture pointing to the fact that God has come into the world and now there is hope. That merger is possible because of the merger of the truths of reason and the truths of faith. But the truths of faith do not simply come through a book. They come through an authorized tradition that helps us understand and interpret. And that's the key thing to understand. Okay? It's not enough to just have words. You have to understand them correctly. The word of God is not just the words. It's understanding them correctly. So let me give you a really crazy example, okay? So my tradition, I was a Baptist, and we believed in this doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, sola scriptura, all that matters is the Word of God, and every single individual believer is an interpreter with full spiritual authority. How do you like that? <laughs> so, wow, you sound like you thought you were a prophet. Well, that's what it amounted to, but we wouldn't have said that, but that's the truth, all right? So there's this very famous text of Saint, uh, Judas Iscariot, remember this betrayer, and he feels terrible about the whole betrayal. So he goes off and hangs himself. And the text says something like this, and Judas went out and hanged himself. Then there's this other text in the Bible, in the New Testament, where the person says to the guy, go thou and do likewise. See where I'm going with this? If you take the text and Judas went out and hanged himself, it's in the Bible, is it not? Yes, it is. Plus the text, go thou and do likewise, is that in the Bible? Yes, it is. And put them together, what follows? Let's get a bunch of rope. Let's find some trees. Let's Jim Jones ourselves, right? Like, that's nuts. That's not what it means. Correct, but it's in the Bible, isn't it? You're like, well, the phrase in the Bible is very stretched and ambiguous. Exactly. I'm playing hermeneutical gymnastics here, right? But that's what the Protestants are up to. Picking here, picking there, and making up stuff out of it. In fact, the very word heresy, you know what the word heresy means? To pick and choose. You take this line out of the creed, you take this line out of the text, and you don't take it as a whole and its understanding. So if every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Baptist, and, Prod and Methodist, and Episcopalian, and who knows whatever, there's like 35 to 45,000 Protestant denominations, if every single person can interpret the text however he likes, then the word of God is meaningless. Right? And the irony is there really is a word of God, namely our king. And he really did say stuff. So there has to be some way to adjudicate all these conflicting interpretations. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus already provided us with the answer. He gave his apostles the mission of authority to teach and teaching means understanding what it means. In other words, interpretation. So here's the upshot of all this. Where is the authority to interpret the word of God located in the world today? Yes, and? Your local church? No. Apostles? Yes, and who are the apostles today? A little weaker. Bishops. The bishops. Yeah. Correct. The bishops. It's still yes and. Almost. The bishops are the apostolic inheritors. The Pope is the Bishop of Rome, 
the supreme bishop, hence a bishop. The bishops are the apostolic authority within the church. Their job it is to properly teach and to interpret. To teach is to properly understand, right? Hence interpretation. So when we say the phrase, the church is the one who has the authority to teach and interpret, what we really mean is that's the bishop's primary mission. Now, Elisa said, well, yes and no in the local church. Yes and in. The local church is the extension of the church and is under the bishop. How many bishops are there in the United States? Hmm. A few, a, a lot. Yes. Yeah. I don't know the number. A lot. Many bishops. Because uh, I think every big city, probably a bishop. Has a bishop. Okay. Yep. Not all cardinals are bishops, so they don't have to be right. Correct. Cardinal is just a person designated as a papal uh, elector, mm -hmm. mostly bishops but sometimes saintly people that are, don't even have to be priests, actually. Yeah. Do we have any cardinals currently? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know the answer. All right, so where is the teaching authority located? It's located in the church. Where within the church specifically? In the bishops. And our priests, remember, are an extension. Remember how we talked about this last week? The priests are an extension of the Episcopal uh, the Greek word for bishop is ep episcop episkopos. That's what that word episcopal means, okay? So episcopal or bishopric authority. So that's what Elisa was talking about, how the church, the local church, has the authority to properly teach. Father Vince's authority to properly teach the text is in virtue of the fact that he's under the bishop. And if sometimes you'll notice a deacon will give a sermon, <clears throat> okay? He's authorized to do that in the priest's authority. So, Andrew, you and I, we can't give sermons. Nope. We can't get up there in that pulpit. We can do stuff like this, you know, friendly discussions. Of course. You can sing. We can sing away. But we do not have the authority to properly teach and transmit this tradition. Now, if you decided you want to become a deacon, then you could serve under Father Vince or whoever a priest is. And then under that authority, you could, you know, give a sermon theoretically. All right, does everyone understand where the authority is? Let me, let me help you understand this. Uh, those of you who have your uh, Bibles along. Oh, I broke the pen. I can see this is going to be a problem. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll give you a page for those of you who uh, are a little still trying to figure out where these books are. 2 Peter chapter 1. So this is page... Hmm, 1730, yeah, 1736, 37, 38, right in there. 1730. So, random question. Fire away. Uh, what if, Except 1737. What if, like, 50 years from now, no one ever wants to be, like, a bishop? Would they ever use different authority to let someone else? Right. Well, St. Paul, St. Paul's way of dealing with that when he was running around doing his first missionaries was simply to appoint people to be bishops, period. So if you got into a situation like that, we've, we've we're into science fiction, and, which helps you round out reality. So we've hypothesized what would happen if there was no bishop on Mars. Like, supposing we put our colony on Mars and the bishop died. Well, let me tell you, there'd be some quick action here on Earth to appoint a bishop. And the laying out of hands, we're trying to figure out how that would work. 
how that would work. Yeah. Andrew, you're a bishop. You. <laughs> yeah, you're a bishop. You're like, what? Yeah. And that's kind of what St. Paul was doing. In fact, he was planting bishops so rapidly, he later tells his protege bishop, Timothy, like his, his top guy that he was investing in personally, don't lay hands on people too quickly. Sometimes they're a little youthful and <laughs> experienced. And you can sense that Paul is telling Timothy this because maybe he was a little quick in some of these bishop appointments. Yeah, people are dying left and right. Succession. So the answer to your question is, right, so the church is going to appoint new bishops. And historically always has. The Romans always went after the bishop. That's the one they tried to kill. And they just kept popping new bishops up. And here we are to this day. Now, if you want to be a bishop, you can't be married. So you need to have a quick discussion here. Better to know now. That's true. That's true. It's a good office, but... Well, there you go. First bishop on Mars. So have a chat with your fiance or your girlfriend. And no, not actually. No, you can't. I'll be the first bishop ever married. No, the original bishops were married. He's like, what? <laughs> Surprise. Okay, so let's take a look at this text about interpretation. Take a look at line hmm, 19. Second Peter chapter 1, line 19. We possess the prophetic message that is altogether reliable. You will do well to be attentive to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So know this first of all, that there is no prophecy of scripture that is a matter of personal interpretation. For no prophecy ever came through the human will, but rather human beings moved by the Holy Spirit spoke under the influence of God. So the interpretation of the scriptures is not a matter of private or personal action. The power to interpret the text is given to the apostles and their successors, which of course are our bishops. And so that is the primary mission of the bishops, to teach what was given and ensure that it's transmitted properly and handed down. And you can see why, right? You can see why. Because if we don't have that kind of order within the church, we lose what? Well, you lose order, but you lose unity. You say, how do we know that? Because we've seen in our own lifetimes, in the last 500 years, how the Protestant Reformation split and splintered and split and splintered. And they, what was their key mission? To get rid of the teaching authority of the church. And then every new guy came up with his own interpretation and then declared his own church. And pretty soon you've got 35 to 45,000 denominations. And there's proof in the pudding, right? It's a bad way to go. So unity requires order. And the order of the church is guaranteed by what we call the magisterium. And the magisterium is the tactical term for the teaching authority of the bishops. So if you ever hear that term in church, the magisterium this, the magisterium that, that term reflects this authorized authority of the bishops to teach and transmit what Jesus taught. Some of that, most of that, to be frank, is contained within our ancient texts. But a lot of it is inferred and developed through our councils. Remember, the Bible nowhere uses the term the Trinity. Nope. It nowhere uses the term the hypostatic union to reflect Jesus' twin natures, God and man. Nope. The Bible doesn't tell us the canon. 
In other words, what's in the Bible? That was a council that figured that out. So the church is the one that had the authority to identify our creeds, to identify the canon, to figure out what's in it versus to the... To identify the Bible. To identify the Bible. Correct. So that's why we reject this Protestant idea, for those of you who might have certain Protestant ideas floating around. We reject the doctrine of sola scriptura. Sola meaning only, scriptura meaning scripture. Our motto is sola veritas, only truth. If truth comes from the New Testament scriptures, which of course it tends to do, great. Okay, if it comes to the Hebrew Bible, great. If it comes through the text of Plato, great. You understand? It's not a question of origin, it's a question of truth. We love it all because God made everything, the whole world. And we can learn lots about it from lots of sources. We just gather it all together. Okay, any questions about the magisterium and how the teaching authority of the church works? The Pope is the only one who can teach infallibly in the magisterium. No. A council also declares infa infallibly. This is known as dogma. But not as individual bishop. Oh, definitely not. It has to be a council. Those ecumenical councils, like, you know, the ones that basically came up with all of our fundamental doctrines. Yes, let's talk about that. Thank you. <laughs> you about to ask that question? <laughs> yeah, we do, not, we do not confer the term infallibility, which means incapable of error, on a book. Because remember, the book is not self-interpreting. You have to have somebody to interpret it. So the infallibility is not in the book. It's in the teaching authority to interpret correctly. So the infallibility means without error, and these are pronunciations of what are called dogma. Dogma is what is without error and what all Catholics are supposed to believe. The things that are being recognized to be dogma are two sources. One, that which is decreed to be so through full ecumenical councils. These are the councils that decided what the Bible is, decided the doctrine of the Trinity. Did everything in the creed, the Nicene Creed, there was a council of Nicaea that formulated that creed. You see, so pretty much all of our fundamental doctrine, correct. And of course, it hasn't been changed since the beginning. And papal ex cathedra, I'll explain that in a minute, pronouncement. Ex cathedra means out of. Cathedra means the chair of the cathedral, which is the bishop's chair. The cathedral is the church in the city where it's the bishop's primary church. Okay. And in the Pope's mean, that means he's, he's speaking from the chair of St. Peter. Remember, the Pope is the bishop of Rome, and the first bishop of Rome was St. Peter, and he handed down his apostolic authority one after another. And so the popes have always been the bishop of Rome. So if the pope declares something from the chair of St. Peter to be dogma, then that means that it has the same status as it, ecumenical council. And if memory serves, again, this isn't exact, but there's maybe been 13 such total pronouncements throughout all of 
the history. This is extraordinarily rare. And then why would it be extraordinarily rare? Can anyone tell me? Is the mission to make up new stuff? No. We've been given our deposit of faith. Jesus gave it. Our mission now is to interpret and understand it. So is the church making up new stuff? No. So the only thing they can be dogmatically pronouncing on is what was given at the beginning and our understanding of it. You understand? Yes. So in what, the third century, there was a controversy over the Christ nature, whether he was omniscient or all God. The right. The church had been teaching generally throughout that time that Christ was both. And then there was a controversy. So you had to call a council, and they worked this out theoretically and made a pronouncement. To be a Christian means articulated then through the one person in two natures and that language helped everyone understand what they'd been sort of fuzzily thinking the whole time all along Jesus was fully God and fully man it's not like anything changed it's just it was now focused and clarified okay the same holds true for the other doctrines even the more allegedly controversial ones like the Immaculate Conception Okay, the virgin birth doctrine, is, that's pretty much found in the actual New Testament, yeah? That Mary was a virgin when she became pregnant from the Holy Spirit, not through any physical act, through a spiritual act. She conceived and, of course, bears the Son of God. And that's known as the virgin birth. And all Catholics are expected to believe this. Everybody believes this. I mean, this well, okay, Christians, right? Now, that then raises certain curious questions, right? Well... If Jesus is being born by Mary, and when we say that, we literally mean her DNA, correct? Her physicality. Her physicality, which means since Jesus came from one of Mary's egg cells, E for egg, okay, the Holy Spirit provided the sperm side of it, the other side of the DNA, then Jesus' egg cell was found where originally? In St. Anne. Because turns out that all a woman's eggs are found in her from the beginning. Men keep generating new sperm cells, right? Women don't. So where was Jesus' egg cell when Mary was still in the womb? In St. Anne. Did you ever put that one together before and think that through? So St. Anne had Mary who had Jesus' egg cell all the way back here. It's extraordinary to think about this. So the Immaculate Conception is different from the virgin birth. The virgin birth means that Jesus, it's not a virgin birth, it's a virgin conception, right? That Jesus was conceived through a virgin, not, is of a virgin, and is born of the virgin. The Immaculate Conception refers to Mary's conception and a spiritual protection here of St. Anne. And the church thought that it was important to recognize that there's a special protection of Mary there and Jesus' egg cell. Makes birth. Not then, but nowadays. And this Immaculate Conception doctrine was ratified much later, like 1800s. Yeah, but they still don't understand the biology of that 
that's a real pity. would have understood that because the, the fall in Eden affected not just our souls, our spirits, but our bodies. But also our bodies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to give a genetic explanation in modern understanding to explain how this doctrine makes a certain extra sense. The more we understand, the more some of these things are illuminated. Okay, and it's extraordinary when you think about it. Okay, and that's part of the point of the church because we run into, crap, we run into new technology, like cloning. What, what are we supposed to do about cloning? Is that good or bad? What, what kinds of cloning? Cloning of human beings is a big deal. You would think, yeah, how does our understanding of what human nature is get impacted by cloning? So the bishops might say, let's talk that out. What should we be doing about this? And you could imagine maybe someday a council being formed to pronounce something on that. So far, there hasn't been a council pronouncing, but there's been a lot of talk. There's been papal encyclicals, which are a papal letter giving general advice that as Catholics we should take seriously. It's brilliant, by the way. The genetic stuff that Pope John Paul, I think it was, wrote is just phenomenal. I was, side, I was teaching a class on um, something about genetics. Bioethics? Yeah, bioethics. And, yeah. and everything we read was just so lame. It always comes down to, well, we haven't come up with a consensus yet. Like, yeah, great. That's no answer. Mm -hmm. And then I read this text on genetics by the Pope. Mm -hmm. And it was so different. It was extraordinary illuminating. And I let my students read this, and they were like, hmm, now finally we have something to sink our teeth into. Mm -hmm. okay. And that's the deep philosophical complexity and understanding that the church brings to bear. From 2,000 years of experience, all this tradition and understanding, of very, very well-trained bishops, right? And the ability to apply all this to a contemporary problem. So when you have new technology, you need the church to be able to evaluate that, to apply it to a new situation. Yeah, the and world's first. Often, I mean, technology's moving like this, you know? Correct. And the church is like... Trying to keep up. Really slowly trying to understand everything that is... And think it through. It. The world's first bioethics uh, master's program, to my knowledge, was actually in Rome at Regina Apostolorum, one of the uh, apostolic universities. And that program had uh, biology requirements, philosophy requirements, theology requirements, ethics requirements, psychology requirements, because this is such a complex problem. And they realize it takes everything. And they had people come in from all over the world who wanted to study and think that through. Okay. Or another thing you run into new things is new religions. Nobody could have forecast that Islam was going to come along. Or more recently, you know, Scientology, what are we supposed to make of that? Well, you, know, you might be able to say, well, I can read the Scientologists and realize these people are Loopy. Okay, true. I mean, I agree with you. But there might be certain moves that some of these religions make that the church might say, okay, we need to mold this over exactly how to understand this. Especially when sometimes religions get things sometimes somewhat right. Not Scientology, Kate Neely. Everything they say, wrong. Okay? But certain other traditions have things in them that are interesting and useful. People have recognized certain things in the Buddhism that might actually be helpful and useful. And we accept truth from every quarter. We, we don't reject some because it comes out of Buddhism. And the Scientologists might have gotten two things right. And then we'd be like, yes, they know that the word and is a conjunction. All right, that's good. 
But the church may, I'm not saying the church has, but the church may want to say something about something like that sometime down the road. Again, that would be another application where they might uh, give us a dogma. Okay. But again, this is exceedingly rare. By and large, the church takes a long time to mull things over, let things develop, and the bishops and everybody talks. We are a talking religion, very similar to Judaism, except Judaism no longer has a authority to transmit and teach what was given at the beginning. The priesthood was destroyed by the Romans during the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That was the end, gone. So now Judaism is broken up into competing sects. There's no unifying order to it. But Judaism is a seriously intellectual religion with enormous amounts of rabbinical culture and tradition and thinking things through, taking their time, mulling it over, what is the significance of this? We, of course, inheritors of the Judaic tradition, but also the great Greek philosophical tradition, you can see that we do the same thing. We take our time, we mull it over. And so our bishops will sometimes give us advice, and the Pope will sometimes give us advice through his encyclicals. Keep in mind that's to be seriously considered advice. Okay, don't just throw it out the window. Well, I don't like it. Mm, that's not how we start. We start with what's best, what's true, what's good. But when dogma is revealed, we don't just pick and choose. Say, well, I don't like baptism. Well, we don't care whether you like it. Your psychology is irrelevant. Get your psychology in gear with the facts. Yeah? Baptism is the path that Jesus gave. If you want Jesus' salvation, you're just going to have to do it the way he said. So you're going under the water. Hmm. Um, you were talking about priests not being able to marry. Would that be encyclical? Is that what you said? Or no, that's a completely different matter. That's not a dog. Oh, no, that's definitely not a dogma. That's what's called a discipline within the church. Okay. So there's Sorry. lots of things. No, this is a fantastic question because what you're helping us do is understand how people get this confused, especially out in the media. Right? Let's suppose the church were to say, okay, uh, priests can be married under certain circumstances. Some people would flip out, right? They would say, oh, the church changed. So much for the church. Well, what if the church changed the wording in the Mass? It's happened many times before. And the marriage issue changed in the past. It could change again. Right now, the church brings in people from the Anglican and Lutheran traditions and, uh, and Orthodox traditions. And some of those priests are married, and they let them continue. They don't say, get rid of your wife, but they allow them to be priests to receive them in. But as a general rule, way back in the day, originally, bishops could be married. If you read Paul's advice in Timothy to bishops, to, who wants to be a bishop, it's required that they have a good wife and good kids. You test a man's character through his children. It's very interesting. Jesus' chief apostle, the first pope, was married. But down the road, people began to realize, and Paul pointed this out, Wives require a lot of attention. Yeah. Husbands, consider this. Women, you're like, this is what we've been trying to say. Pay attention to us. And the trouble is, when a man is a bishop, he's not just a local priest, he's a bishop. He's got to concern all these churches, and it can't be with any favoritism toward family, any nepotism toward his own kids. You understand the things, right? And a bishop who's completely neutral, gives all his time over, right? And the church realized that having bishops come from the unmarried ranks was very helpful for order and neutrality and a whole bunch of other reasons. And so they decided as a group, okay, let's only draw our bishops from the monks, which are the unmarried. 
That was a decision, that choice they made. It was not incumbent upon them. No obligation. They could reverse that. Not dogma. Practice. Mm. Then later they realized that, you know, the same thing that we applied to the bishops is useful for our priests. In the Western tradition, they did that. Catholicism. In the East, they did not do that. So if you go to the Eastern Orthodox Church, the other half of what we view as a whole church, right? The Eastern Orthodox Church, many of their priests are married, but not all. Lots of them are not married. It's a choice. But if their wife dies, they're not supposed to remarry. Again, for the same reason. Deacons are not under this rule. Deacons can absolutely be married. But if their wife dies, they're then supposed to devote themselves just to the church. All of those marital rules could be altered. And recently there was a great challenge in the Amazon rainforest, you might remember this, where there's like one priest for 1,800 churches or something. I mean, that may be the right number, but it's crazy. And the Amazon bishop was saying, look, we need help here. And petitioned, or somebody petitioned the Pope, could we change the rule to allow us to appoint men of good character and standing, even if they're married, to get priests so we can do the sacraments? And the church ultimately at that point came to the conclusion that, hmm, Maybe not yet. Let's try to get some more priests. But if it turns out they can't, and you can see the struggle we're having in the United States and other places, the simple answer is, well, maybe we should start appointing married men of great noble character, of years of experience, or like people of great experiences, even in the noble deacons. Like, what if the Pope said, Deacon uh, Minner, we need you to be a priest? You'd look at him and you'd be like, oh, well, he's a great guy. Yeah, he'd be a perfect priest. Not that he's a priest, you understand. But I'm just saying, example. No problem, the church can do that. In no wise does that undermine the church's authority in any way because that was never dogma. Primarily, if you want to know what the dogma is, read the Nicene Creed. It says nothing about marriage and priests. Before talking about how interpret... How much time do I have? 747. Not too bad. Could be worse. Okay. Before talking about the different modes of interpretation, are there any other questions about how dogma works, how infallibility works, what it applies to, and what we're supposed to believe? Mm -hmm. That's his cathedral. His church is called the cathedral. His church is called the cathedral. Yep. In our diocese, that's St. Joseph's, which is on Broad Street. Okay. Doesn't mean that he presides over every mass. Right. He has assistant priests to do that, but that's his home. And, he, and the bishops often will go around to the other churches to visit them. At some point at St. Mary's, we'll have a bit, once we get our new bishop, whenever that comes about, eventually probably the bishop will visit us and you'll see a bishop procession and all it's pretty glorious and noble. Yeah. Um, but if you want to get in advance on that, you can go ahead over, what was you St. Joseph's, right? You can find out when the bishop's going to do mass over there and just go there. There's nothing that says you have to only go to St. Mary's. Right. It's one church, holy, Catholic, the whole deal. So if you want to go attend another church because they're doing something interesting and special, by all means. authority of our bishop. 
can you make like a general comment on the difference between dogma and doctrine? <laughs> no. Because I think they're the same thing. No, not necessarily. Doctrine is the general teaching of the church. Dogma is what the church has officially declared as a necessary belief. Okay, so let me understand. If it came to it. Very, very close to that. Okay, but when so. There is no doctrine, doctrinal or dogmatic reason that women could not be in the, the cardinal positions as papal electors. But love, the catechism is doctrine, not dogma, is what you're saying. Yes. So not everything in the catechism is has to be believed. It may turn out that it's not all dogmatic. The church will work it out and, they and identify what's dogmatic versus what was in error. Okay, so generally speaking, generally speaking, if you read the catechism, you're more or less good to go. But if you find some things in the catechism that strike you as a little particular, you can check. So where's the list of the actual dogmas? There's somewhere this is all listed, right? Yeah, go to the Vatican. There's not them as like 13 plus, but the creeds are dogma. There are more than 13. There are like 13. Papal ex-cathedral ex pronouncements. Declarations. The councils have more. Right. The, the nature of the, those things which have been declared dogma primarily rate, relate to uh, Christ's nature, the Trinity, and Mary. And salvation. And salvation. Right. Because the Trent issues were dogma. So who asked the, I don't know who asked the, you asked, yeah, you asked the question. So yeah, when it comes, all right, so when it comes to philosophy, listen to me. When it comes to theology and matters of human nature and constitution, listen to her, she's better. We, together we're, <laughs> we're a great team, but I don't always get some of these quite right, so that's very helpful. So yeah, what she said. One of the things I decided, actually before I asked her to marry me, was that when it came to it, on most matters of life and practice, I was going to follow this rule. Listen to your wife. Mm -hmm. And that rule has been extremely prudent to follow. It's much better. Now, as a general rule, that's a good policy. Just remember, there's the occasional exception, like Adam, who should not have listened to his wife. But generally speaking, you guys who are thinking about marriage and you women who are planning to marry future men, make sure your future men know this rule. I'm sure, so, you'll, I'm sure you'll tell so them. The yes. <laughs> Back to reality. <laughs> so for the bishops. Say they get bored with it, and they're like, hey, I want a wife. They get an office job for a year, mm. and they go back into a church. They mm. have a wife now. Are they allowed yeah. to get back into it? Well, here's the problem. Being a bishop, you're thinking of it like a job, but we never called it a job. Notice we called it an office. Or a vocation. Or a vocation. So once you're made a bishop, you can't not be a bishop. Do you get fired? No. You can be fired from the job, but you can't be unbishoped except through a special act of the church. And even then, your priesthood remains. Your obligations to your vows remain. So you can't sort of un... No, if you leave the church as an apostate, 
If you leave the church as an apostate, you may do what you want in the sense of, but the church isn't going to recognize apostasy, which is departing. That's what apostasy means, as being valid. Yeah, don't be. A, yeah, you. Don't. Yeah, but that's not what's what happens. That's not what bishops do. Yeah, don't think of it as a job. Think of it like a commitment at the same level of a marriage. Although I know we have a lot of divorces in our world. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus's egg cell was contained within Mary's body Jesus's within Saint. Through Saint. Through, through Mary. Happens. So like a big circle, then a little circle, then a little circle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Doctor, you want to give us? A yeah. No, no. I, no. <laughs> no. If you have additional information, you should by all means. You, any of you who are experts. Oh, yeah. He always has that insight being omniscient. It's almost like he has a plan. We're right biologically, right? Women have their ovas developed yes, by yes. them when they're fetuses. Right. So Mary can, would have contained right. the material that became Right, exactly. Yeah, and I don't, I, I don't want to go further into the Mary Saint issue because I don't want to steal from Elisa's thunder. Next week, she's up. Remember how I mentioned on the theology? We actually start letting her do this stuff. So, so it's, you'll be, she, you're going to love it. Next week's talk's going to be, do not miss it. On, uh, she's going to be oh, overly flattered. But her Mary talk is amazing. And I'll let her deal with all the St. Anne Mary stuff because she's very good. Okay. So I'll, we'll, let, we'll let that stuff. Infallibility is good. So let's talk a little bit about interpretation and how it works. What is going on when the church interprets? Okay. And essentially... Uh, we have two uh, levels or kinds of interpretation. So let me erase this. So when the Pope comes up like, with a bright idea, he can have a bright idea but a new way to interpret the word. He can call all these people together. There really isn't any new way. All they do is keep um, applying the old ways. Well, that wouldn't be an interpretation issue of the Bible. That would be a practical sure. policy. Let, let me use an, an example. So the, the current Pope Francis was a chemist, actually, by training. So, so say in his spare time, which he doesn't really have to tell, but let's just say he does, he is doing research on chemistry, and he decides to like, publish a paper on chemistry and puts it out to all the chemistry journals. Mm -hmm. That paper no more standing in the Catholic view than any other chemist. Oh, so, they were, so they would want me for things like gay marriage? So the Pope is only, the church is only teaching on matters of faith and morals. So yes, let's say something like gay marriage comes up. So the church is going to have a lot of councils and they're probably going to take about 200 years to like fully hear everybody out and they're going to have all the, the they're going to invite in uh, psychologists, they're going to invite in their moral theologians and they're going to talk it out and then they will make their pronouncement and their teaching. Why won't they invite, instead of having all these big wigs, why won't they just have just normal people? They do. They like do. Two, like AP World Republic and Mary, why not just have them there instead of 
It wouldn't be just them. They would have everybody. The church wants to gather all the data. They've been collecting it for a while. They've already started. Yeah, on that, they had a family, a big conference on the family. Oh, yeah, sure. Although that is a matter of moral dogma, is it not? Yes, and, and abortion isn't like something that was just invented in 1972. Yeah, it's been around since ancient the times. Had oh, yeah, ancient. Abortion technology. I mean, that's just something humans have understood technologically for prior to 1972. So. Yeah, the church's view on that has been consistent. That's one of the things we're just absolutely not to do because the child is a human person and therefore protected. So we're not, abortion is murder. So the church has always held that view. If they change that view, then St. Anne wouldn't be holding the, it, I mean, they couldn't, but anyways. It would have been bad if she had aborted Mary, yes. Just as it would have been really bad if Mary had aborted Jesus. You can just see where but this is going. It would be the Immaculate Conception because then he wouldn't be considered in her. Or Correct. He, who knows what he would be? Not a person. Well, he would have been considered. Well, God, yeah, he wouldn't have been a he. It would have been a thing. Maybe that's one of many reasons. Maybe saying it was an amazing mother, too. We, we can go through the, the church's teaching. Because I always thought God was just chilling up there, and he was like, damn. He's extremely patient. Remember when we studied the text of Romans, Romans 2, how God is so patient, waiting for people to come repent? He doesn't just instantly splat people. He's not an instant splatter. It undermines education. Okay, so we have the literal and the symbolic interpretation of a text. Now, as we're going through this, I want you to understand and keep in mind that many texts will have multiple levels of meaning at the same time. A text can be both literal and symbolic at the same time. Don't always think of it as one or the other. So the literal meaning of the text is pretty much the way it sounds on its face. Okay? So, for example... The New Testament texts again and again give us cases where Jesus appears to people after his resurrection and he tries to prove to them that he's physically resurrected, that he's not a ghost, that it's not like in their minds or their hopes and dreams or that, oh, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was the spirit of resurrection because it's kind of like spring and wouldn't that be beautiful, right? That's symbolic interpretation. Some Protestants will interpret the resurrection as symbolic only. Now, we see a symbolic meaning of the resurrection, right? It's richly symbolic of the future. It is linked to spring, but spring came first because it was symbolic of the future resurrection, right? But the resurrection is also clearly in the text meant as what? A literal depiction that Jesus was physically, he had come back. So much so that he tells Thomas to touch him. He does the example with eating the fish to prove that he's not a ghost. He even tells them, well, if you're always a ghost, it wouldn't work like this, right? Again and again to demonstrate the physicality. So the literal meaning of the text is Jesus really did rise from the dead. And the church, of course, has always taught that from the beginning. Now, the symbolic meaning of a text is how that text stands as a metaphor for something else. Hence, symbolizes. And this occurs, intriguingly, in three different ways, leading to the famous fourfold sense 
of interpretation, okay? This being the first, then this two having three versions. So let's talk about those three forms of symbolism. So the first form of symbolism is allegorical. Also called typical because we reference types. So what's happening in an allegorical interpretation? Telling a story. And what is the story also doing? Teaching. What, but what's the message? What? No, that's the next kind. Keep that in mind. That's the next one. Very good. It's prefigurement. Okay, prefigurement. So what does that even mean? Okay, do you remember we talked about Melchizedek, right? How Abraham was coming along after that battle, and he comes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek comes out of Jerusalem and brings to him bread and wine. This is an early Genesis, the first, we call it the first instance of the Eucharistic idea. Now, is that consecrated host and consecrated wine? No. This comes years later when Jesus institutes the Eucharist. And yet here we have bread and wine. So we call this a figure of Eucharist, but in pre, pre-figurement. You understand? So it's an image of what's to come in the past that's sort of a foretelling or a foretaste. The manna falls in the wilderness, right? And the Israelites eat it. What does that sound like to you in terms of our sacramental theology? The manna is the bread of heaven. Who is the bread of heaven? The body of Christ in the Eucharist. So the manna is a prefigurement of the Eucharist. In fact, almost all prefigurements are sacramental. And I'll tell you, this is extraordinary. Once you understand the significance of this, especially if you were Protestant like I was, and you go back to the Old Testament and you read it, you see the whole Old Testament text in a different way. They light up. You find sacraments everywhere. Like when the children of Israel are told, okay, kill the lamb for the Passover, paint the blood on the doorpost, and the angel of death will pass over you. Well, the doorposts are a symbol of a cross, covered in blood, and death and the wages of sin, because that's what this is about, judgment, passes over you. And of course, that is an awful lot like Passover. redemption, Passover. It's their Passover, redemption. And when did Jesus' death take place? In fact, over Passover. Not an accident, you understand? So the past is prefiguring, typifying what's to come. Melchizedek himself is a type of Christ. The king who lives forever is also a priest. Well, you couldn't have someone who's a king and a priest in the Jewish tradition. The two offices were separate. But Melchizedek was both. And Jesus is a priest after Melchizedek, so he could be both king and priest. Or when the, um, those, uh, the Israelites run through the Red Sea, remember, whoosh, water goes back, they zip through there. Okay? The, pa the passing of the water is the pathway to deliverance. right? And what does that sound like? The metaphor of baptism through which we're redeemed and delivered into the promised land. Okay? So again and again, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contains the manna, the bread of life. 
It contains the law, the word of God, and it contains the budding, air, budding rod of Aaron, the priesthood. Who is both, all three, the priest of God, the living bread, and the living word? No. Jesus, the Son of God. And in whom are all three, yes, and in whom are all three located? In Mary, and therefore the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of, you jumped right into it, correct, Mary. See that? So even in the Jewish system, we find these prefigures. So we say the Ark of the Covenant is a type of Mary. The budding rod of Aaron, the giving of the law, the manna are types of Christ. Okay? And again, the Old Testament comes alive. We're going to start a program once we get past COVID and people can you know, do things together. We're going to start a program where we're going to have um, faith home groups. And there'll maybe 10 people and you get together and you'll for a certain amount of time, maybe three weeks, eight weeks, depending on the series, there's going to be a video series and you can watch it together. And one or two of them are based on understanding the Old Testament through this, uh, this methodology. And it will just enliven it. It's so exciting. So keep abreast of that when it comes about. But allegorical interpretation is truly extraordinary. Oh, how about the Garden of Eden? Oh, there's another one, right? Here you have a tree which you're not supposed to eat of it, and you eat the fruit, and it brings a condemnation of death. Okay? And then there's another tree that also follows a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And the next tree is the tree of the cross. And when you eat of that fruit, the Eucharist, the cup, it brings not condemnation, but life. And in medieval art, you, if you go with, like, to the great museums, maybe, is, is, I don't even know if there, I think there's a tree of life in um, Cleveland Art Museum. There might be in the medieval section. But you'll see these extraordinary pictures of trees, all the branches, and then there's these little bubbles, the fruit. And the little bubbles are all little depictions of key elements of Jesus' life. And the idea is his life is the tree of life, but it's also the cross. Or another one, uh, the pelican. Do you ever notice in the front of our church on, on the altar, down below there's a gold or uh, probably not technical gold, but brass, gold plated. I don't know whether it's real gold. Don't get any ideas, you thieves. Okay, <laughs> gold, and there's a pelican there, and he's doing something weird like this, or she rather, okay? And all her little chicks are down there, and she's pecking, picking at her breast, cutting it open, because pelican females, when there's not enough food and water for their chicks will cut their own breast open to give them the blood from themselves to make them live. And zillions of years ago, way back, you know, when the church first started, thousands of years ago, whatever, not zillions, but thousands of years ago, they knew about this. And so the pelican became an image, a type of Christ in the Eucharist. It's extraordinary. It goes on and on and on. Wasn't Moses' staff when he became a serpent kind of allegorical too for the cross? Yes. And remember how Jesus said in John 3, the Son of Man will be lifted up just as Moses lifted up the serpent and the people that looked at it got deliverance. Very good. Yes. Okay. And you can understand that some texts we know are to be interpreted symbolically rather than literally. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. You're like, okay, so Jesus is a shepherd. We're the sheep. Okay. Well, I'm a literalist, so... Christians should really be living in barns. We were just in Sweden, and there's some group of crazy, some form of bizarre Christian sect. And they're, um, they've heard the phrase, the devil lives in a corner. So they've developed an entire theological worldview where 
They build houses that are all circles, so there's no corners anywhere to keep the devil out. Silliness. <laughs> Silliness. And, well, there's no edges to run into, okay? But that's not right. And literally, we don't interpret when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, you are the sheep, as a literal thing. It's a symbol, okay? Okay, the next kind is the one that you mentioned, which is the moral. And the, what's the technical term of this? Let me just check my notes here. All these technical terms. Oh, it's moral. It's, the technical term is the one I'll put in parentheses. It's called tropographic. And a trope is a moral teaching. So here the idea is not to prefigure something that happens in the future, but to indicate a moral principle. So take the story of Noah and the flood. Okay, we aren't sure how to interpret that text from a literal standpoint. Could there have been a great flood where a lot of people were destroyed and a small segment of people that got delivered in a big boat? Yes. Is there some evidence for this historically? Yes, the Epic of Gilgamesh gives us additional reason, and there was definitely a major flood around the Black Sea area, I think, in about 7600 BC. And it's an interesting story that could well have set the original story. Okay, does it matter whether there's a big ark somewhere? No, it doesn't matter. What's the lesson? The lesson is that when God warns of impending judgment or get rid of your sins, it's best to get rid of your sins. Right? There's a lot of these kinds of themes throughout the Old Testament. So we glean a moral or tropological uh, teaching from that principle. And you find lots of these with the children of Israel. In fact, their entire history is tropological. It's one, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. This is the disaster that happens. Okay? The last form is called anagogical. And anagoge in Greek means um, to go up like a staircase. Technically in Greek we would call this a teleological interpretation for those of you who know that. It's basically seeing the grand plan, the big picture. So a good example of this, God takes Moses at the end of his life up on a great mountain and shows him the promised land. And this is where your people are going to go. So the idea of entering the promised land becomes a great theme for us as the rest to come in the next life when God recreates all things in perfection. Okay, and that is an aspirational principle. This is where it's leading. Okay? And I use teleology because uh, telos in Greek means our end or purpose or fulfillment. So the teleological principle is the principle we're moving toward, the purpose. So there's a lot of things in the Old Testament, and in the New actually, that you can interpret in this anagogical way. Uh, marriage is anagogical. Okay, you say, well, isn't marriage literal? Absolutely. Marriage is literally a relationship between a man and a wife and a holy matrimony, and we'll explain all that next semester. In spring, whatever. Sorry, too collegiate. Okay. <laughs> is it symbolic? Yes. Is it allegorical? Yes. It's a prefigurement of our future relationship with Christ as the church. Is it moral? Absolutely. It's filled with moral principle, how husbands and wives relate to one another. It's also anagogical because the beatific vision, the best metaphor we have, 
is the intimate erotic love between husband and wife. And that has always been the principle that's been drawn, intriguingly, not just by us, but by the pagans. That somehow there's this understanding that that intimacy reflects the relationship between man and the gods. And the Christian model follows the exact same principle, sees an aspirational principle built into marriage that gives us a sense of what our destiny is. But it's still symbolic because you say, well, what does it actually mean? What's it going to be like to have God show himself to you, as it were, in full nakedness of who he is? I don't know. None of us know. That's the point. So we need, we need a metaphor to point us to it because you can't know till you've been there. And nobody who's been there can come back and give you words because the words would refer to something that none of us have experienced. You understand the problem? So the only thing left at that point is a poem or a metaphor. And so we have these deep metaphors. And the best me metaphor we have for these intimate relationships, of course, is marriage. So marriage then can be interpreted in all, all four senses, but also anagogically. So you know those readings we get in Mass, the Old Testament reading and the, this the, and that reading? You have to understand, the priest will then give a sermon, and he'll pull out of this and pull out of that. He may be using the literal, he may be using the moral, he may be using all four. Because this, these texts were written by human authors. But God is inspiring them in the background. Two authors. And human writers can sometimes have multiple intentions of what they write. We have poets who have multiple meanings. God, oh, he's a clever author. Okay, He was doing stuff back in the time of the ancient Israelites that nobody could see where this was going. Could not see it. Now that we have all of our Christian sacraments, we can't believe what was back in the Old Testament text, the Hebrew, the Jewish experience. Well, we have things in our experience, our sacraments, that are pointing to what's to come in the same way we are going to be astonished. And that's what's going on. So we have multiple levels of meaning happening because we have multiple authors teaching these texts, giving us these texts to begin with. And so never limit yourself to just one level of interpretation. You might have a priest who will emphasize a text and teach it on an allegorical level and that's it. And the next year you might hear a different priest or your same one, do a different, or two. And it's not like they're in contradiction. They can all be happening at the same time. So learn to read the Bible. And it's, Catholics are encouraged to read the Bible. Sometimes in the past they weren't so much. Now, we have Bible studies, we do all kinds of fun things. <laughs> but remember, as you're reading these books, read it in light of this rich, multi-faceted levels of interpretation. Don't get limited to just one thing or just one line. You want to see it in that big picture. And if you have questions about what does this text mean, that's when you go to Father Vince. You come to us. We'll try to help you. When we're all clueless, then we take it up to Gene, to the bishop. If he doesn't know, he'll talk to his buddy. Somebody will figure it out. <laughs> all right. Any questions about uh, the different senses of interpretation. Not bad. 816. Okay, we're good. Any questions? Any questions at all? Anything tonight? Additional questions from tonight? Oh, I can see the look. <laughs> so like a random question. Oh, yeah. Where do we get this image of Does he ever say anything in the 
We know he has a beard because at one point the Roman soldiers pull his beard as part of their torture. As for his height, no, we don't know. I'm sure he's Middle Eastern, right? Yes. Jewish. All the images always show him as very, very white, but I'm sure that also relates to him being that holy, right? Maybe. Who's doing the painting? Jesus, he's reflected as the way that the people who the artist came from look like. So if you look at Jesus painted in Sweden, he's like really, really pale and has blonde hair. If you look at paintings of Jesus that came out of the Italian tradition, it's a little bit darker, his hair is a little bit darker. If you go down into the personifications like from in Africa, Jesus is black. The historic, was the historical Jesus like a black Ethiopian? Probably not. Did he have blonde hair? Probably not. But that's not the point because Jesus is human, right? And so people are portraying him artistically in the way that Christ would speak to them. What they think a man looks like, that's how you would paint him. We don't ultimately relate to Jesus ethnically or racially. I know race is a big deal, especially now, you know, but really we're all the same race. There's the human race. That's it. Colors is not different races. The different races are the angels versus us. The demons, remember we talked about this, want to introduce this idea of hating people based on differences. They're the ones who introduce this idea that we should hate each other based on stupid factors like what color, what pigment level you have. But there's only one race, the human race, human nature. So Jesus, whatever pigment he was is irrelevant. He's the son of man, hence human nature. All right, more questions. Did you go to mass in Sweden? France. We were there for France. Yeah, we weren't in Sweden during Sunday. We went to mass in France. Oh, okay. At a church that was... um, Yeah, well, the church was rebuilt. A lot of these churches are built on the ruins of the last one. Yeah, Yeah, it's something different when you're in Europe uh, because it's so old. And it all goes back to the beginning, the foundations of our faith. Eventually, we want to put together trips to go and, you know, visit these places down the road. It's one of my goals. It's one of our goals. I'm sure all of you be like, yeah, that's a good goal. Uh, Wouldn't it be amazing to go to Rome? Hmm? Oh, that's right. You're experts already. Hmm. <laughs> Any country with pigs, we're probably going to need a pig expert. <laughs> and don't, you, don't people sometimes have health problems on these trips? Yeah, Wouldn't yeah. it be good to have a doctor along? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all want to be paid. Yeah, that's the catch. It's the cost involved. But save your pennies. You know, we have plans to hopefully introduce, obviously, pilgrimage to Israel. That would be just obviously great, right? Uh, Rome and Florence to do the Renaissance and Rome and hopefully get down to Pompeii and Naples. And of course, yes, yeah, and the teaching, and the teaching, yeah, but the wine, yeah, the wine. Jesus didn't separate those notice. Off the record question, how was, you said you went to France? Yes, we did. How was it? Oh, it was wonderful. Truly. They're not that little. That's the 
you're thinking of the croissant or the little coffee, yeah. You take a baguette and you cut a little slice and then you can put things on it. That's what you're thinking of. Bruschetta. Well, but do the French, but beer, is beer, French beer a thing or is it, yeah? I don't know beers. She knows beers. I would think. But does anyone drink it? I thought that's one of the things Germans are good at, yeah. <laughs> no, France was truly extraordinary. Amazing culture, beautiful, beautiful architecture. The food was extraordinary. The people were tremendously friendly and gracious. We had heard all these reports about Parisians being snobbish, not at all. And of course, the museums are filled with the most amazing art. That Everything that's not in Italy, there it's in the Louvre, the British Museum. And the little school children everywhere were yeah. like little French school children. Imagine getting to like take your fifth grade trip to the and their little uniforms, and they're always, and they're running along, and they're singing as they run along together. It's like a Disney movie. It was. It was. Like in America. Like right on Broadway. It was. It was just like that. All right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, let's do our prayer. Okay, so a quick announcement. Some of you noticed that on the uh, schedule, we have an event, uh, a mass type event, a right event uh, on Thanksgiving weekend. Although if you look closely, it's Thanksgiving weekend in 2022, not 2021. Jokes on the next class. Jokes on the next class. So completely obliterate that entry in your mind and in your schedule. We're not going to have to be here on Thanksgiving weekend at all, okay? That, we're not doing that then. So that event, what it's supposed to be, we'll put in our next semester schedule, and we'll tell you about that in the future. So next week will be our final class. Elisa will do it on Mary, the Mother of God, for before our break. Then, of course, Thanksgiving. We're just going to break through Thanksgiving and Christmas because it's too much hassle. And then we'll come back again, and we'll give you an email announcement you know, in January to let you know. Don't forget. Okay. Okay. And then uh, don't forget about the great mass retreat that our, our dear friend Father Jeremy is going to come do with us that Saturday in January. You'll see that on your uh, schedule, so make sure you schedule the time for that because that's going to be all day. Okay, and it's going to be really great, so don't, you do not want to miss that on that Saturday. That will be in, in during Lent, and I believe that starts in March. Do you like fish? Probably February. February. You don't have to eat fish. That's not on, on it makes me. I'm like Yes, you can eat fish. Yeah, well, not that. Those Fridays. Not those Fridays. Okay, so we'll see you next week, and then we'll have our break.